There are nearly 280,000 unsolved murders across the United States. This constitutes a national crisis, and our country has hundreds of thousands of victims' family members who have no answers and no justice for their loved one. Using advances in technology, crowdsourcing, and good old-fashioned boots-on-the-ground investigative work, follow American Military University's Cold Case Investigative Team as we work to break the case again for one of these families. This podcast contains details and descriptions of actual homicide victims and their injuries, including sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Jen Buchholz. I'm a forensics and criminal justice professor at American Military University, an Army veteran, and a criminal investigator for my local sheriff's department. My partner in crime solving is George Jared. I'm George Jared. I'm an investigative journalist and award-winning true crime author. Together, Jennifer and I have helped solve other cold cases by harnessing the power of social media and crowdsourcing along with other investigative tactics. This season, we are taking on the unsolved murder of Linda Malcolm. On April 29th or 30th, 2008, someone viciously stabbed Linda Malcolm to death inside her home and then set the place on fire. Linda was a Navy veteran who had settled down in Port Orchard, Washington and worked as a paralegal. Her case is one of dozens that were submitted to our team for consideration as the focus for our next investigation. We strongly believe our crowdsourcing methodology can bring forward progress in Linda's case and help identify her killer. After conducting some initial research on Linda's case, George and I got in touch with the AMU student who had submitted her case for our consideration. That student was Mike Booker, who is also Linda's nephew. Hello. Hey, is this Mike? Yes, Sam. Hey, Mike. It's Jen Buchholz. How are you doing? I'm fine. How are you? I'm pretty good. You got a few minutes? Is this an okay time? Yeah, I do. George is on another call. He's going to try to call in when it gets off of there, so... Okay, Okay, no problem. For the moment, you just have me, but basically what we want to do is just get an idea of what you know about the case. And this is your aunt, right? This this is my aunt. My mom's sister, yes. Yeah. Um... Just get an idea of the, a little bit of background on the case and basically whatever your feeling is in terms of what law enforcement has done or not done and okay. just kind of get a feeling of how your family might feel about us looking okay. into it. So Okay. I was in Iraq at the time, so I, I can help you out as much as I can. My mom will probably be the, the best person mm-hmm. I, I give you what I know. Yeah, that's fine. Okay. So... I remember she was a paralegal there in Port Orchard, Washington, mm-hmm. and she was taking a new job. So this happened the day before she was moving to her new place. She was physically going to be moving from her apartment to somewhere else. Yes. Yeah. She was. I think she was running a house. She was physically going to move. So somebody called it in. The house was on fire. So when they put the fire out, she was stabbed to death. Jeez. And they pretty much burned the house down. So uh, I don't know that they had a lot to go on. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that they ever really had any suspects. I know it frustrated my mom and my aunt and my grandmother and everybody because it has to be somebody that was close to her. In my mind, it's someone she knew. And the only thing that I've ever heard was they think they might know who it is, but the person was already incarcerated. But that's as far as they got. I mean, they haven't proven anything. I mean, it's all I really know. And I think the detectives are all retired now. Uh, I know my mom or my aunt, they call all the time to see if we got any new information, anything new happening, you know. Yeah. But 
do they provide anything? Like, are they even doing any work on it? I don't, I think it's a cold case that I, I don't know if they're doing any work on it anymore, mm -hmm. um, unless they have assigned any cold case detectives to it. But uh, I asked her about it all the time and they really don't have any more information. I mean, I've never been out there, so I don't know how big of a town it is. I know it's outside a naval base, so I mean. Yeah. Do you know if she uh, had a significant other of any? And not that I know of. Mm -hmm. But my mom would be able to better yeah. answer that. Okay. Yeah. And do you do you know how long she'd been out of the military before this happened? Um, probably ten years. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah, she got out of the navy, and I think she just stayed there. She was a paralegal in the navy, so. Okay. I don't know if she was working for on post or if she was working with a private firm, but I know she was supposed to go to another firm, was due to move that very next day. And, okay, you said you've never been out there, right? So you haven't no. actually seen the location? Okay, I'll ask your mom more about the yeah. physical location of where this occurred, because I'm just curious. Yeah, my mom would know a lot more. She was the executor of the will, her and my aunt, so they were out there. Okay. They're the ones that talked to the detectives. And, and you said... This actually occurred in a home? For some reason, I thought yeah, it was an apartment. It was a house. Uh, I believe she was renting the house because I know my mom was saying that, I mean, it's just kind of spooky, but she was out in the garage. That's how I know it was a house. And a box fell off the shelf randomly, and it had her will in it. So. Oh, my gosh. Really? Yeah. It, <laughs> yeah. And I, and I was the beneficiary, so which was really weird. Whoa. But yeah. So um, that kind of freaked her out, but... So I, I know I know it was a house. I think she was just renting the house. Okay, we can find that out. Yeah. Did you tell your mom that you submitted this case? No, no, I haven't yet. <laughs> I was just telling somebody that. What do you think her reaction would be? Um, you know, I think she I think she'd be okay with it because I think they're just frustrated. Mm -hmm. I mean, my grandmother. I don't know how much longer she's got. You know, she's in her nineties, so. Yeah. Um, I think they're just kind of all frustrated that you don't have any any idea no clues nothing you know yeah i think there's actually a ton of clues you i think hit the nail on the head already that it was somebody she knew in her inner circle yes, yes. and if we find a bunch of indicators that point in that direction then that totally narrows down the field of suspects oh definitely are you familiar at all with me and george's work no, I'm not. I just, I had seen it. I think, I don't know if it went out through a mass email through the university or yeah. it was on the page. I can't remember, but I was like, you know what? I'm going to put this in. They call me, they call me. If they don't, yeah. they no. don't. <laughs> I'm so glad you did because Linda's definitely caught our eye. So George and I linked up about four years ago. He's an investigative journalist by trade. I'm former army, but my education and stuff is like forensics and I teach forensics and I consult... Okay on a lot of different homicide cases. And I actually, this year, was lucky enough I landed a criminal investigator job with my local sheriff's department. So I'm like, oh, nice. also doing it for real. Um, <laughs> anyways, so me and George, what we do is completely on a volunteer basis. What the university helps us with is media platforms. So every case that we dive into like this, um, I write a series of articles, like analyzing different aspects of the case. and the university created us a investigative podcast. So every season we do is dedicated to one victim's case. And okay. we call it an investigative podcast, not true crime, because we can't publish the podcast exactly in real time, but we do it as close to real time as possible so that listeners are right there on the journey with us. 
And people seem to really enjoy that. And then we also utilize social media heavily to gain awareness for a case. We're on all the platforms, but we rely heavily on Facebook because it provides the best platform for like discussions and brainstorming and a lot of psychological warfare. (laughs) And, you know, we get as many people involved as possible. We don't care what anybody's background is, where they live, how old they are, nothing. We just want them to follow along, ask questions, come up with ideas because he and I can't think of everything. And there's been so many times where someone brought an idea to us and we're like, oh my gosh, that's brilliant. We never would have thought of that. So um, we use a lot of different platforms and tactics to investigate a case. We always travel to the location at least once for a few days so that we can get some on the ground research and stuff done. And because we just strongly believe if you go to the actual scene of a crime or the location, it's gonna speak to you. You'll discover something that you wouldn't have otherwise. Over the years, like we've, we've actually gained the help and attention of several different experts. Like we have a DNA extraction expert who volunteers her time occasionally for us. We have a genetic genealogist who, if we end up with a case with an unknown DNA profile, he can do the family tree stuff and, and narrow down the suspect. And we have a few others like that. So we've gained some pretty good connections and like people that at least want to lend their assistance if needed. And so we bring a lot to the table, but the big thing is the family members of the victim really have to be on board with the effort because it's going to reopen all the wounds. Things are going to be said about the family online. We will always defend the family. They're going to see comments that offend them. They're going to see comments that upset them. There's people out there that want a victim shame. And we address all that. I always have this hard discussion with the family at the beginning because they got to be aware of this and think about it and make sure that they're really going to be okay with it, you know? Right. Maybe when you have time, if you're still interested in us looking into the case, maybe you can talk to your mom and aunt and any other immediate family members and see if they're even interested in talking to me and George. Okay. Yes, definitely. Because I'm going to Illinois. I'm leaving next Friday. Hang on one sec. George is calling. Let me loop him in. Okay. Hey, George. Hey, sorry about that. I had another meeting that went way over. That's okay. I have Mike on the line. So let me just merge the two calls. Okay, excellent. Okay, one second. Mike, you there? Yes, I'm here. Awesome. George? I'm here. Okay. Mike meet George. George meet Mike. Hey, George. Hey, Mike. Sorry about that. We can chat now. (laughs) No worries. No worries. Mike doesn't know the case real in depth, but he gave me what he knows. And then I was just talking to him a little bit about our processes and the different investigative tactics we use. And what I had suggested is he kind of passed some of that on to his mom and aunt who know the most about the case. Yeah. And see what they think and if they're interested in talking to us. And I told him that the family is looking for help, then we'd definitely like to schedule another conference call. Absolutely. The first case George and I teamed up on, we did help gain an arrest. Partway through our conversation, Mike and I realized we had something in common. Hey, where in Colorado are you? I'm in Colorado Springs. Oh my God, so am I. Oh my gosh. (laughs) No way, get out of here. Yeah, I thought maybe you used a conference call and they just picked a random number in Colorado when it came up 719, so. No, and I had noticed your area code and I meant to ask when you first picked up the phone and then I got sidetracked, but. (laughs) Well, Mike, just so you know, in our last case, Debbie, the victim, she was born in Portland, Oregon, where I grew up and she lived in Lubbock, Texas when she died. (laughs) Wow. 
and she's she buried, buried in the same cemetery, yeah. in the same cemetery as my grandparents. <laughs> must be some connections going on. That's all I can think of. It seems to happen in every case. I'm happy that you guys called and contacted me. Like I said, I know my family—they're frustrated. They've been frustrated for years. So when I saw it, I said, "I'm just going to put it in, and we'll see what happens." Now tell my mom. So since you called, <laughs> yeah, see what they think. Um, like okay. I said, it can be too overwhelming for some people, but yes. we do throw every resource possible at it. I mean, we bring a minimum of $5,000 to put in a reward fund so we can advertise a reward. We set up, okay. we set up a confidential tip email. People can, if they don't want to go directly to law enforcement, cause a lot of people don't, they can come right. to that tip email. I'll strip all their identifying information and just send in the content to the investigating agency. Um, like I said, we do on the ground research I, okay. I mean, a lot and we only work one case at a time. So okay. whatever case we're on, that's it, you know, so we can put our full focus on that. I guess Jeff would probably explain to you, our, our main goal is to create a web, a crowdsourcing web so that we can catch whoever, whoever committed this crime and so we try to involve as many people as we can, because as you know, a lot of these cases may come down to one witness, one person who knows something, and we have to capture that person by any means possible, whether it's book, podcast, we do a lot of like local news and stuff like that. Whatever it takes, we'll, we'll push the envelope. Okay. Yeah, we have an advantage over police in some ways. We're civilians, so we don't have to give them Miranda rights. We can call, talk to anybody we want. Some people get off put by like, quote unquote, civilians, but we actually have a lot of advantages over law enforcement. And those have worked good for us in the past. Like I said, it, it's someone that she knows or knows her, that's all, that's, but yeah. where it's gone, I don't know. Yeah. Once we've examined any information that you guys will have, we will start with the most obvious answer first and work our way out from there. Because I think that sometimes people overcomplicate these cases too much. They, they think because they, that they're not solved, that there must be some like secret, unknowable reason why it's not solved. And it must be some grand conspiracy or something of that nature. When a lot of times it is a simple answer. The police just haven't been able to connect the dots. And sometimes that's because the evidence isn't there or incompetence. I mean, or we're just on, on one of those wild goose chase tracks, like one case we worked on where a detective for 14 years thought it was one person when I, Jennifer, and everybody in the world told him, no, 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 it's not him. And then finally, you know, lo and behold, they get a new detective on the case. Eight months later, we have an arrest, and it was in the vicinity of the person that we thought did it. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I can see they get one track mind or they get too bogged down. They got too much stuff going on, you mm -hmm. know, so uh, get first eyes looking at it. And that's kind of what I thought when I saw it. Exactly. And a lot of the time we don't have the actual case file. So we have to work it from a very different path than traditional law enforcement will work it. But we've found that that actually can be very helpful. So we have to develop sources and like George said, like we end up creating a huge network of people. We meet people in the local area. We end up having local errand runners. But yeah, we, we have a very unique way of investigating a case. But like I said, okay. it's, it's been successful. But we do need family support. We have had, unfortunately, a family member go off the rails on us. And 
I'm not gonna say she was a complete detriment, but she did a lot of damage. Okay. And we just can't have that happening. No, I understand. Me and George had come up with, we call it a memorandum of cooperation. And it just outlines expectations for the family, which is basically just don't get on TV and badmouth us. <laughs> but it also gives a general outline of what we bring to the table, like the reward fund and the tip email and like the standards that you can expect us to be held to throughout the process. Um, okay. And then we all sign it and then we go on our way and we do our thing. So that's just a quick overview. I really think your aunt's case is solvable. There's a lot to unpack here. I mean, being stabbed yeah. and then the house set on fire and stuff like that. The killer took a lot of unnecessary actions. And so that that gives us insight into their motive, their personality, stuff like that. Yes. Helps us narrow down yeah. the, the field of suspects. Yeah, that's, again, we've all thought it's somebody that knows her. But uh, mm-hmm. like I said, my mom and my, my aunt out in California, they know more about it. But my mom probably knows the most. So okay. I'll definitely call her this weekend and let her know what's going on and I'll shoot you an email, see, let's know what she says. Okay, that'd be great. I'm going to shoot you an email with these resources here in a couple minutes. And if you have okay. any questions, of course, you have my number now. Reach out anytime or email me, text, whatever. Okay. No, thank so. you very much. Thanks for I taking some time it. to chat with us. All right, thank you. Nice to meet you guys. You too. Take nice care. Nice to meet you too, Mike. Bye. Bye. After we got off the phone with Mike, Jennifer and I discussed our initial thoughts on Linda's case. So what'd you think? Well, I really like him. Um, Yeah. And I do like the case. It's got a lot of interesting aspects. There's a lot to analyze. Yeah, and the fact that he lives so close to you, I don't know how that would be an advantage right now, but it could end up being one. Right. So that's in its favor as well. Plus he's in law enforcement. Yeah. So I like that too. So are we going to talk to his mom or? He's going to talk to her first because she doesn't even know that he submitted the case for our consideration. Okay. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Well, I, we definitely need to talk to the mom and the, well, I guess they're both sisters to the victim. Is that right? Yes, I think so. Okay. We need to talk to them first. I think I would get a better sense from them. Plus, I think I have to hear how much information they have, Mm -hmm. what they have access to. There's just a lot of things we're going to have to work out before we can really make a decision on this one. Yeah. Um, This victim, originally I thought she was killed in an apartment, but he said no, it was a rental house. And it was her last night in that house before she was moving to a different rental. Oh, wow. He's like... This person knew her. I'm like, yeah, I already agree with that. (laughs) Yeah, there's no question. He doesn't think the cops have much in the way of forensic evidence because of the fire. Um, She'd been out of the military, he estimates, for about 10 years prior to the murder. Did she retire military? No. This says she served for nine years. Okay. And she was a paralegal in the Navy, and then that's what she did when she got out. And he's Did not she... entirely sure about the job situation. He knows she was working and he thinks she was also getting ready to switch to like a different law firm or something in conjunction with this move. But he said his mom she... will have all the details on that. Did he say anything about her possibly having a boyfriend or anything like that? No, he said she was bisexual, but he doesn't think she had any significant other at the time of her death. I mean, just hearing that one detail makes me wonder if... 
the stabbing was because that's a rage killing. You know, mm-hmm. that's just someone who's just really, really pissed. Yeah. And it makes me wonder if it's someone that she rejected, maybe for someone of the opposite sex. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just just a thought that crosses my head. Yeah. What if she broke up with a guy and said she's interested in this woman? You know, some men yeah. would take great offense to that. Yeah, agree. But it could go the other way, too. It could. So it's like, did somebody sneak in in the night? I don't know the time of this fire or any of that yet, but... Well, I'll tell you one thing. The house thing does take away, though, is we were thinking there was going to be people living in an apartment that... I know. So that is one. We got to do take that into consideration, too, that we thought we were going to have this trove or cache of people we could possibly contact well there was a neighbor this came from melissa's research but there apparently was a neighbor who saw the fire and ran over and kicked open the back door trying to save her so there's somebody nearby okay so if there's one somebody maybe there's a bunch it's probably in a regular neighborhood or with a bunch of houses around i don't feel too discouraged based on that yeah when a crime is committed Clues live within digital devices. That's digital forensics. Learn how to process and analyze that data by earning a Bachelor's of Science in Digital Forensics from American Military University. Classes are online with monthly program starts. Learn more about AMU's Digital Forensics degree by visiting amuonline.com forensics. A few days later, when Mike was visiting his mom, Cindy Booker, in Illinois, George and I got on a Zoom call with them. We were also joined by Melissa Sandberg, one of our investigative partners, who was instrumental during our Season 2 investigation. She wanted to meet Cindy and Mike to see if she could offer any insight, particularly from her background as a social worker. Parts of our conversation centered around Linda's lifestyle. As a reminder to listeners, we never condone victim shaming or victim blaming. However, it's crucial that we examine a victim's lifestyle in great detail in order to learn as much as possible about their habits and associates. I don't want to give anybody any false hope. I've obviously read about Linda's case. I actually read up on it today for a while. But if we think we can help you, we'll try. I would love to. My father passed away and my mother's going on 94. She still thinks about her every day. Your mother is 94. She's going to be 94 in December. Yeah. It's been haunting my mom. I'll never find out what happened to my daughter before I die. Mm. She's still got pictures of her hanging on the wall. Tell your mom not to give up hope on that because I was sitting in court with a guy who never thought that he would see his daughter's killer. And he spent nearly two decades looking for that guy. And you know what? He finally got to see him last Wednesday. Good. So I'm going to tell my mom tomorrow. Melissa, you yeah. want to just introduce yourself, tell about yeah. your background and why you came on board with us? So my name is Melissa Sandberg. I'm actually a licensed clinical social worker, but I got a minor in law enforcement. But I've always uh, been interested in helping victims and families. So when an opportunity presented itself where I could actually help on an investigation, I was all about it and blowing up their phones and um, like, here's this and this and how about this? And then, so anyway, so that's where I met Jen and George and it's such an honor. I I was thinking about this the other day. I'm like the third wheel on a date. Like I follow these two wherever they go. Like, (laughs) let me be the third wheel. 
I'm here just to answer questions from a psychological, psychosocial aspect. And, and I think as you'll find out, we're all very intuitive with investigations and the behaviors of the person who committed the crime and also what was going on. So we work very well together and bounce ideas off each other and do a lot of research and stuff. So your sister's case brings out a lot of questions. Like, why isn't it solved yet? It looked like there was a lot of people of interest and the way of the crime happened is very telling of motive. Jen will talk more about that. So uh, we were very happy when Mike reached back out. I'm glad he did. Yeah, yeah. Do you maybe want to give us like your your overview of your sister's case and then what's been done or not done over the years, what your family has, you know, been able to get help on or not been able to get help on and just your viewpoint on the whole thing. I think my viewpoint is they let it slide. My sister retired Navy and when she retired, she stayed at Port Orchard. She worked for an attorney out there, did some paralegal, and I think it had to do with drug cases, pretty sure on that. We talked a lot back and forth, and she came to visit a lot. Last time I seen her, she was really depressed, uh, was worried about things, and she wouldn't tell us exactly why. But I, I told her, I said, you need to talk to us because something's wrong. Would there be anything that would, like, that would make her depressed, like, well, Is that a pattern that you'd ever notice? Well, what had happened is she lost her job for, okay. with the uh, attorney, and she got put in jail for, uh, I don't know, she had drugs or something, marijuana. Um, and then she was getting on the Internet. I'm not sure exactly what it was doing. She was mm-hmm. on there doing things. But then I noticed she was doing some drugs, like taking stuff. And I told her, I said, Linda, you need to straighten up i said because i don't want to get a phone call that something happened to you do you know what she was taking i think what pill she was on so some type of prescription medication some type of prescription medication and drinking it was like something to help her feel better do you happen to know what paralegal law firm she worked for do you know the name at all i had this last workplace was for a bob h-o-w i think it's l-e and so she worked there. And as far as you know, that law firm, they handled drug cases. Is that what you said? Not this one. That was a new attorney's office. But okay. I can't remember the name. Okay. But I did go to that last attorney's office and talk to him personally. Okay. About her. But she had just started working there. And she was getting ready to move out of her house that she lived there forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I just found this out. I guess the last couple of months at the house, the landlord was letting her live for free. And supposedly the wife vouched that the landlord, well, they were out of town when this happened. So I don't know what was going on there. What did the police tell you about what their theory is about what happened to her? Have they talked to you about that at all? We was told that door was unlocked because there's no sign of break-in entries. Mm-hmm. So do you have the autopsy? No, no. Jennifer is an expert at analyzing autopsies, so she won't tell you that, so I will. Um, <laughs> that's good. <okay>. So <laughs> that's a real critical tool that we, we need and use, and, and you should have. I mean, my God, it's been 2008. It's yeah, 2020. Right. 
Yeah. Yeah. So. I have just another question regarding when you found out that she was bisexual, was this known for a while or did she just come out? No, she just told me that last time she was here before she was murdered. She was telling me about the stuff she's doing on the internet. When she came out and told you she was bisexual and doing these things on the internet, what was the time frame between that and when she was murdered? It was about a year, not even quite a year. And that detective knew her prior yeah. to that. Detective McKinney, mm-hmm. real nice guy. He was on the case when it started. And he knew Linda from, uh, she'd go down the street, he'd pull her over from drinking or she'd have a headlight out or something, but he knew her personally. Okay. So she's been arrested a few times or the cops were familiar with her? Just familiar with her drinking and driving. Detective McKinney mostly, but of course he's not there anymore. Right. But they didn't have like a friendship. They just came together through law enforcement interactions? Through law enforcement, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that was it. Is McKinney still alive? Do you know? I have no idea. Okay. I know he's retired. But... He's retired. Okay. That would obviously be somebody we would try to find and talk mm-hmm. to. And then there was a bar that she used to go to, and everybody knew her at the bar. Okay. And was it close to her house? Um, you'd have to take a cab down. You couldn't walk. Okay. okay. Um, so it's not it's, walking distance. It's not walking distance, no. Okay. But she would drive, right? Drunk? Right, or she took a cab. Okay. okay. She took a cab down. Okay. There was two guys that lived down the street. One guy came up and he he uh, was walking or something, said he seen the flames in the window. And he's the one that called the fire department. Can you remember any other details about the, I'm just going to call it the crime scene because it was. Is there anything else that stuck out to you? Is there any other details police told you about what they found? Was anything missing or out of place or any evidence of a struggle, anything like that? They just said they thought whoever did it knew Linda. Yeah. And they just said, you know, she was stabbed. There's this perception now that you have to have certain things to solve a crime. Well, before we had those certain things, we had to go out and just do good old-fashioned police work, you know, go out and talk to people. Because whoever killed your sister has told someone about it. Mm -hmm. And so what we... What we have to do is we have to create a net big enough that we capture the person who knows. And it might just be one person in the whole world. And somehow, some way, we've got to find them. And the best way to create the best kind of net is to understand as much as we can about your sister's life and what she was doing and who she was hanging out with. Because I will guarantee you that of the people you've just spoken about, one of them knows something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's... Uh... Her boyfriend, he lived he lived in uh, Seattle, and okay. um, I met him, but he broke up with her because she drank too much. But he still come to see her now and then. That was really It's very strange. common for people in the military to start drinking too much. It's a very common she, pattern. She did drink a lot. She was an alcoholic, just to kind of let you know. Why did she separate from the Navy? She was discharged. She was over in Hawaii, and I think, from what I understand, she was over there, and she had a boyfriend or somebody. She tried to stab him, or she did stab him. Okay. It was a domestic issue. Okay. They got in a fight. Was your sister somebody who was kind of aggressive? or could yes. be? Yeah. Yes. She could be. She could be. Okay. So it wouldn't be uncommon for her to get into a fight that she no. started or 
looked for. She, she, if somebody said something to her and she asked him to leave her alone, they did it again. Well, that was it. She said nicely the first time, second time. Yeah, she started fighting. Okay. And she, she mouthed. She was mouthy. Yeah. I mean, not that that, you know, is any uh, reason. I'm just trying to get her, her personality and what, you know, people that she would interact with because some people would take offense to that, right? And that's the way she was. She was very strong, very strong will. Yeah. Uh, she didn't take any crap off anybody. She's not right. submissive, clearly. Mouthy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So she's not going to go down easily. No. Like you said, she was pretty fit and she, this wasn't her first fight, right? I think she let somebody over there that she knew yeah. to have dinner for them. Sounds like it, yeah. And then something happened and she got in a fight with them, knowing her, she probably punched them around and stuff and they got mad at her. Hey, Cindy, I have just a question just to kind of throw it out there. Who do you think is responsible or what was the motive, do you think? What's your what's your family and your gut say? No, my sister. She either was hanging with people or told on somebody or was going to tell on somebody or she just got the wrong person mad at the wrong time. We talk about stuff and she cries. She wanted to be really tough. But yeah, when she got around us for all the sisters, we talked to her and then she cried. Mm. She had a lot of stuff in her that she never told us a lot, but we knew something was going on. And that was night she was carrying on about She's afraid of people. It was like, Linda, you need to, you know, you need to stop what you're doing. And, you know, you're, I'm gonna, somebody's going to give me a call and you're going to find you dead. Why I said that, I don't know. It was a month later. Wow. We felt an immediate bond with Linda's sister, Cindy, and nephew, Mike. Her case intrigued us, and we strongly believed that our expertise in behavioral analysis and crowdsourcing could provide a lot of new insight and clues about Linda's killer. From that point forward, we established an investigative plan and we got to work. Next time on Break the Case. When you look at it from victimology, but also from a social perspective, her lifestyle, unfortunately, brings in a lot of risk factors. It doesn't matter what a victim's lifestyle is, nobody deserves to be murdered. Nobody deserves to be stabbed however many times and then set on fire. But like you said, we have to examine those intimate parts of the victim's life because they will provide clues. She sent a curious email to all of her siblings on Tuesday the 29th. They were not accustomed to getting an email like this from her. And so it raises some questions. She was not a submissive person. She had many defensive wounds. So she mm -hmm. was able to put up a fight. The killer was unable to overpower her immediately. That's a clue. That's a big clue. This crime was very hateful. This person hated her. I'll tell you one thing that we need to do pretty quickly is we need to figure out who she was friends with. Obviously the fire destroyed some evidence, but it didn't destroy everything. This podcast is brought to you by American Military University. Narrated and produced by Jen Buchholz with co-host and investigative journalist George Jared. Senior producers Leishan Kranick, Andy Crow, and Kristen Kretzler with support from Lisa Tanis. Sound engineering and editing by Harvest Creative Services. 
Subscribe to Break the Case on iHeartRadio, Google, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.